You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. It's a very special episode. We're talking about a topic that does not get enough attention in the media and even in the health space itself, but that is changing and is changing rapidly thanks to guests like we have on today. And this is something that I saw in my practice for many years, and this was something that really dedicated me to helping to address this issue because uh, oftentimes folks were coming in and we were getting some pretty good progress with their nutrition and their movement practices, but there was a certain percentage of people that no matter how well they were eating, no matter how uh, their exercise regimen looked and the consistency there, they weren't able to uh, reduce their blood pressure and to get off their lisinopril or whatever medication they might have been on or get their blood sugar regulated and dealing with you know insulin and metformin in cases like that and working alongside their, uh, their physicians. It was just something that really bothered me a lot. Like they're doing so well with their diet and their exercise, what's the missing piece? And so even though it took me a few years in practice to finally start to ask people about their lifestyle, like their stress, their schedules, their sleep, and some of the things people share really start to just blow my mind. It's just like, how are you even getting by? How are you even doing as well as you are with the amount of stress that you're carrying? And little do we know that we can overeat our way into being overweight. We can under-exercise our way into being overweight, but we can also stress our way into being overweight. And we're going to be talking about some of the reasons why here on this episode today. You know, our stress response system is incredibly valuable and it's something that we need. It's something that helps us to, to live and to be able to thrive in the world. However, when that stress response system is, is hyper-stimulated and overactive, we all heard this before, like cortisol has gotten a really bad name in modern media, right? But cortisol is not bad. We need cortisol. We get a nice, you know, a brew, like the, the coffee brew is going in the morning on that cortisol coffee pot. And it's ready in the morning to get you up and get you going. But when cortisol is being produced in overwhelming amounts and that coffee pot is just overflowing and spilling out all over the counter, somebody's got to clean it up. All right, number one, but also if it's produced at the wrong time. Maybe it's not a good idea to be having a cup of coffee brewing at one o'clock in the morning, right? So that's where cortisol can be a problem, but we need cortisol. But what cortisol can do, one of the things that's really interesting is that it has this unique ability to actually break down your valuable muscle tissue, right? Cortisol can break down your muscle tissue, and we know that muscle is your body's fat-burning machinery in many aspects. When you are hyper-stressed or chronically stressed, cortisol can break down your muscle tissues, a process called gluconeogenesis, and turn your body's protein machine, your muscle, your fat-burning machinery, into sugar, which then can stimulate even more cortisol, more of a cortisol response. And so this can become a very negative feedback loop. And so I just want us to understand just a little bit of the science behind how stress can affect our body composition, but it can also affect our sleep quality. It can affect our mental and emotional well-being and how we're responding in our relationships. Stress is something that is very real. And the reason we don't think about it often is because we don't necessarily see stress, right? We can't see it. It's this invisible uh, entity that's enforcing this kind of 
pressure upon our lives, but it is very real. And we can see this show up in our blood work. We can see it show up in how we're monitoring what's happening with our brain activity and even when we're asleep. So just because we don't see it doesn't mean that we can't measure it. And it, does, it definitely doesn't mean that it's not real. And so today we're gonna to be talking about the stress solution. And we've got one of the foremost experts in the world on the subject matter here on the show for you to dig into the subject matter. And speaking of modulating and dealing with the stress in our lives, you know, and I mentioned the er earlier, it jumped into my mind, this coffee pot example, right? Coffee is a big thing we turn to as a coping mechanism for stress because stress can also make us exhausted, right? So we turn to the coffee and then it hyper-stimulates the stress response system and we feel better for a while, but then we need more of it, right? So it's changing our relationship with coffee. And by the way, I just saw a study that upwards of 90% of the population regularly consume some form of caffeinated beverage. What? I didn't know it was that many people who enjoyed coffee and or caffeinated teas, but wow, that's really, really interesting. And so me saying don't do that is just silly, all right? This is something that humans have a resonance with, but I think that we can do it better. We can upgrade our relationship, upgrade the quality of the coffee or teas that we're drinking and not hyper-stimulate and push that caffeine button down by going to, you know, uh, crack bucks, no, no, no offense, and getting that conventionally grown, pesticide-laden, moldy, whatever brew, all right? I'm sorry if you're drinking some right now, but you know, it's just, it is what it is. We're getting a piping hot cup of pesticides along with our coffee. So at least upgrading and let's get organic coffee. Let's balance it out with these incredible mushroom coffees, right? We've got organic coffee along with some medicinal mushrooms that help to balance out the effects it has on our bodies because coffee is also, it's, a, it's an acidic substance, which this is getting into the whole conversation of, is it acid forming the body? Does it make your body acidic? It doesn't work like that, all right? With these acids and alkalines, acids and bases, your body will always compensate and balance things out to keep its pH in the different organs. But the thing is, when we are consuming a hyper acidic diet, especially coffee is pretty acidic, it can literally start to leach minerals from your system to, to balance things out and leave us deficient. And the thing about these medicinal mushrooms is that many of them are very alkaline. And so in and of itself, in that kind of basic science we talk about in biology with acids and bases, that's pretty cool in and of itself. But let's take this a step further, listen to this. Today, I had a cup of cordyceps coffee, and here's why. This was a study published in Phytotherapy Research, and it found that cordyceps medicinal mushroom can literally improve brain function and elicit antioxidant enzymes that help to protect your brain and also can help with libido. All right, so I'm just throwing it out there. All right, that's not the reason I was sipping it, but that's a pretty nice bonus, you know, because it's a natural encouragement and, and support of your uh, antioxidant systems and also your circulation. All right, so cordyceps medicinal mushroom has those properties and actually Here's another study that I came across as well, and it found that cordyceps has the ability to literally protect your mitochondria, all right? Protect your mitochondria. This is the energy power plants within our cells that create the energy currency of our cells. Cordyceps have been found to protect these ancient bacteria that have uh, integrated with our own human cells that give us energy. Wow, all right? So it's more of a natural 
uh, calm, balanced form of energy that I get from the coffee versus what we get with conventional coffee. And this is why I'm such a huge fan of the mushroom coffees from Four Sigmatic. And this is the only ones that I use because it's dual extracted, meaning you actually get a hot water extract, alcohol extract to get all of the goodies that you want that you hear about in studies like this. What extraction method was, was it? And we know that we're getting all of it from Four Sigmatic. So head over there, check them out. It's foursigmatic.com forward slash model. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash model. Get 15% off everything they carry. Their mushroom coffees, mushroom hot cocos, mushroom elixirs if you're not a fan of you know, hot chocolate and things like that. So you can get them straight and they're amazing. All right, pop over there, check them out, foursigmatic.com forward slash model. Now let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled An Excellent Smorgasbord of Guests by Max Slater 412. I love listening to this podcast. Sean always finds people with such a great outlook on physical and mental health. A smorgasbord. I love, that's one of the words you just, it just feels good saying it. You know, so thank you so much for sharing that review over on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate it so very much. And uh, listen, if you've yet to do so, make sure you pop over to Apple Podcasts, leave a review for the show. And I just saw some of the metrics recently on how many uh, tens of thousands of new listeners we have listening to the show that are not yet subscribed to push the subscribe button. All right. Subscribe to the show on whatever platform you're listening on. And if you're watching this on YouTube as well, subscribe. You don't wanna miss a thing, all right? And especially right now today, this is gonna be pretty epic and I think you're gonna love this a lot. We're gonna jump into our topic of the day and our special guest. Our guest today is Dr. Rangan Chatterjee and he's a pioneer in the emerging field of progressive medicine. And this is a physician who's one of the leading voices in lifestyle medicine that is really a movement right now and changing the way that we look at illness. And he's known for finding the root causes of people's issues by taking a broad approach to health and wellness. And this is highlighted in his groundbreaking BBC TV show, incredibly popular, called Doctor in the House, and also his internationally best-selling books. And we've got him here in the studio, straight from the UK. And we're gonna jump into this conversation with my friend, Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. You made a really interesting transition yourself uh, from having a general practice to writing books, TV show. Like, what was the catalyst for you to wanna do those type of things versus you know just doing the kind of day-to-day conventional practice? I think, there's a couple of number, there's a number of things which happened for me. Um, the one that's really relevant to that question, I think is, look, I was kind of frustrated as a doctor for many years because, you know, I got some really great training. I went to, you know, super good medical school. I got an immunology degree. I was doing my sort of specialist exams. I was doing uh, kidney medicine, like nephrology. I was kind of slightly frustrated. I thought, I don't want to just see one part of the body. I think everything's connected and I don't want to just see kidney issues for the rest of my career. So I moved from that to being a, a generalist. And one day at the end of my clinic day, I looked back at all my patients and I thought, how many people have I really helped today? Mm. And I thought, I've only really helped 20% of people, 80% of people. I feel, yeah, I've done something. I've given them a pill, I've referred them for an investigation or a test, but I didn't really feel I understood 
what was going on and how to help them get to the root cause of their problem. And so I think that frustration was just burning away inside me. I didn't really know what to do with it. I just knew I was, with hindsight, I looked back and I realized I was a little bit frustrated. And ultimately, Sean, the, the reality is, is that 80% of what I see as a primary care doctor now in any given day is in some way related to our collective modern lifestyles, right? Yeah. 80%. And so I'm not putting blame on people. Right? I get it. Life is tricky. Life is tough. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of stress out there. I understand that. So I want to really help people understand that the various aspects in our lifestyle absolutely drive a huge part of how we feel, um, how happy we are, how productive we are, what our relationships are like. And so I've realized that I can have, I think, more impact, mm -hmm. you know, by making a TV show where I go into people's homes who are sick and they can't get better with medication, they're under their doctors, they're under their specialists. And I managed to show millions of people in the UK and in many countries around the world that if you pay attention to small things in your lifestyle, mm -hmm. you can literally transform the way that you feel. And it's it's almost unbelievable when you say it like that, but it really does make a difference. Yeah. And I try and keep things super simple for people because I think we've overcomplicated health. We made things too difficult, too extreme. And when you just focus on some basics, you can have a huge impact. So that's why I love doing the TV. That's why I love writing the books. That's why I love recording a, a weekly podcast is because you can empower people like you're doing with your yeah. podcast. You empower people with information that they feel is actionable. And it, it doesn't just affect one component of their life or their health. It impacts everything. Yeah, absolutely. Man, I love this so much. You know, what's so fascinating for me is that just coming from the space that I was in, when I initially went to school and choosing a pre-med track, I saw pretty early on, which I wasn't really cognizant of it, but there's this hyper... Uh, focus on medication. And so it's not that it's not valuable. It's just that conventional medicine, it tends to be operating from a place of like you're deficient in a drug. And someone like yourself is like, yes, these, these are tools, but 80% of this stuff is related to our lifestyle. These are things that we can change and we can improve yeah. and we can use medicine to support that. So it's really beautiful to see, man, and the impact that you're having and then transitioning that into the books into the television, so cool. But this particular book that we're gonna talk about today is, is really near and dear to my heart because this is an issue that is not talked about enough and it's the underpinning of so many issues. And so this is the stress solution. And I'm just wondering for you personally, like what was it? Was there a certain day? Was there like a moment when you realized in your practice, like, listen, I've got people eating better, you know, they're getting out and they're moving their bodies, but stress is really, messing a lot of people up and causing some of these issues we just kind of attribute to other things. I, I can't say there was one particular moment, right? But I remember over a period of years, things were coming up and the whole diet and nutrition thing wasn't enough to help my patients. Just nutrition's great, movements, sorry, I say diet and nutrition, I mean nutrition and movements, which is basically what the whole discussion around health gets polarized and just it's all about food, it's all about movement. Those things are important, but I realized for many patients, they simply weren't enough. Yeah. And so a couple of things I guess from my practice, I've noticed one particular patient I saw, I still remember this super clearly, right? He had type two diabetes. I think he was maybe, I'm gonna guess late 40s, early 50s. He had type two diabetes. He saw my TV show, he'd read some of my blogs, he'd read some other health blogs on the internet. 
And he thought, wow, maybe I can do something with my diet to help my type 2 diabetes, right? So he went on to what most people would call a low-carb diet, okay? Now, I say most people would call, I'm sort of, I'm not a huge fan of that term. And the reason I'm not a huge fan of that term, even though many of my friends use it, it's because I think it's very simplistic. I think we have demonized fat for many years and I think we are potentially doing the same thing with carbs now unless we have a bit more context and a bit more nuance. But this guy, he went on what would be called a low carb diet. He really cut down his refined and processed carbohydrates. Fantastic. And he was starting to get an improvement in his blood sugar. Now, he was doing this just from you know reading information on the internet. He was empowering himself and making a change. But he was getting frustrated because his blood sugar wasn't coming down anymore. It had plateaued. And he was trying to cut his carbs even more to figure out, I must not be doing it right. I need to cut back more. Yeah. And anyway, he ends up in my door. He ends up in my clinic and he says, hey, look, Dr. Chatterjee, I've been doing this. Um, I'm still on metformin, which is a, a blood sugar drug. I've really got my sugar under control, but I can't get it any lower and it's frustrating me. And I was looking at his life and I thought, hey man, this guy is stressed out. He is a busy executive. He's working late every night. He's not sleeping well. All kinds of other things are going on. And I actually think he's stressing himself out more, trying to cut carbs even more. And so, you know, I spent a bit of time trying to understand what was going on. And it was quite clear to me that stress was the primary issue. But he was resistant. I said, look, we need to really work on your stress levels. When you are stressed out, that will raise your blood sugar. I don't think this is any longer a diet issue. I think this is a stress issue. You've made great changes in your diet, well done. But focusing overly on that area, you're missing the big picture. Yeah. So all you had to do was some simple things, right? I helped him over the course of a few weeks to switch his computer off, his work computer off for an hour before bed. I mean, he was literally doing work emails in bed because he had so much to do. He was resistant at start, at the start, so I started with 10 minutes, and then he gradually was starting to feel the difference. He went up to an hour. He was also killing it in the gym. What I mean by that is, he was a busy exec, working hard, rushing hard, you know, always on the go. When he went into the gym, he would go to a, like a really intense spinning class. Mm. And I said, hey, look, I think you're tired. I think your body is deplete. What I'd love you to do is, yeah, sure, work out, maybe let's work on yoga for a few weeks. Let's really work on a type of exercise that restores you and is not depleting you. Yeah. Now, I'm not against spinning, right? But it's about the right form of exercise and movement in the context of the rest of your life. Yeah. So he was a bit resistant, but he agreed. So basically, he switches off before he goes to bed. He cuts down the technology. I teach him some breathing techniques, like one that I call a three, four, five breathing technique. When you breathe in for three, you hold for four, you breathe out for five, and he switched the spinning classes for yoga. Within six to eight weeks, his blood sugar started coming down, and maybe six to 12 months later, it had come right back down to normal. He didn't change his diet, and I told him, actually, you can eat more carbs than you currently are. Just relax a little bit, have some more whole food carbs. I think you're going way too extreme for what you need. So that's just one, I've got so yeah. many yeah. stories, but that's one case where I thought, hey, it's not all about food and movements. There are, for me, I say there are two other big pieces, the sleep, which obviously you're an expert on, or you're an expert on all the whole wellness space, but sleep is a big issue. Yeah. But I think stress is an issue that people, as you've already said, people are not talking about it enough. Yeah. 
That's why I wrote the book. I wanna give stress the airtime it deserves so people start to take this thing seriously. And you know, to give you another example, Sean, what happens every January, right? In the US and the UK, what are people trying to do? They're trying to cut down on sugar. They're trying to cut down on alcohol. Now here's the thing. In January, if you say to yourself, hey, this is the year I'm gonna do it. This is the year I'm gonna get my life on track. I'm, I'm cutting down on the sugar this time. I'm cutting down on my alcohol. What I see happen in my clinic is this. For one week, people use willpower. They're fine, they can do it. Two weeks, they might be okay. Even three weeks, they might be fine. But then they start to go back to their existing behaviors. And I see that often we use alcohol, often we use food and things like sugar to soothe the stress in our life. Mm. So if I don't deal with the underlying stress in their life, I can't change the behavior. So. Look, I don't like giving these things a rank of importance. I think food, nutrition, movement, sleep, yeah. stress are all important. Yeah. But if people are listening to this podcast and they have tried to change their nutrition and they can't make it stick, maybe it's because they're using food to help deal with the stress in their life. Mm, I love it. Yeah, so powerful. And I think that all of those components you just mentioned, it depends on the time of year. It depends on the day. It depends on the person. It depends on so many factors. It's unique. And it's really, um, it's an interesting kind of ebb and flow. You know, sometimes other things are going to get more attention than others. But stress, and I'm so glad you mentioned this, that you are popularizing this conversation about it because it's so overlooked. Now, you mentioned something about, you know, changing some things with his lifestyle, not the food, and getting his, helping to support his blood sugar and coming down. How exactly can stress affect our blood sugar in the first place? Yeah, look, Sean, that's a fantastic question. And I think the, the best way to answer that is to really explain clearly and concisely what the stress response is, right? The stress response is fundamentally there to keep us safe. That is ultimately what it's there to do. So let's rewind two million years ago, right? Two million years ago, we would be in our hunter-gatherer communities, in our tribes, okay? We're getting on with our business, doing whatever we're doing. If a wild predator is approaching like a lion, then we suddenly start to change. What happens? We're scared. We think, okay, there's a predator attack. Uh, there's a predator approaching. In an instant, our stress response kicks into gear, right? So what happens? A series of physiological changes kick into place when that happens. Your blood sugar starts to rise. Why? Because then more glucose can go to your brain, which is what you need in an emergency situation. Right. Your blood pressure starts to go up, so more oxygen can get to your brain. That's gonna help you get away from the lion, right? Your amygdala, which is the emotional part of your brain, that goes on to high alerts. So you are hypervigilant for all the threats around you. That is an appropriate response when you're in danger. Your blood, right, your blood starts to become more prone to clotting. That's great, because if you get attacked by that lion and you get cut, instead of bleeding to death, your blood's gonna clot and that's gonna save your life, right? So in the short term, these things are super helpful. The problem today is that many of us are having our stress responses activated, not by wild predators, but by our daily lives, mm. by our email inboxes, by our to-do lists, by our competing demands, by two parents working, one's trying to rush home to pick somebody up and take them to a sports class, elderly parents we might have to look after. For many of us, our bodies are reacting in the same way. So. Those things that work so beautifully well in the short term, like your blood sugar going up, if that's happening day in, day out to your life, 
well, that's going to lead to low energy. It's going to lead to obesity and type 2 diabetes, right? Because stress raises your blood sugar. That's the reason it does it. Mm. It's not just food. It's not just movement. As you know yourself, Sean, sleep deprivation raises your blood sugar. But everyone's still just talking about food when we need to broaden out that conversation. Blood pressure is a big problem these days. Again, I've just shown people how blood pressure, your blood pressure going up if you're running away from a line is appropriate. If you're at the gym and you're doing a spinning class, your blood pressure will go up. That's an appropriate response to a short-term stressor. It's these things are becoming long-term. That's where the problem is coming about. And that emotional part of your brain, the amygdala, which I told you about, which goes on to high alert when you're stressed, that is an appropriate response if a predator is attacking. If you are in downtown LA tonight and it's dark and you think someone might be following you, you want your emotional brain to go onto high alert. You want to be hypervigilant. Right. But if that's happening day in, day out to your email inbox, that's what we call anxiety. So the stress response, once we understand it, we start to realize the studies show that 90% of what a doctor sees in any given day may in some way be related to stress, which is a remarkable figure. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is a great segue into, you talk about these MSDs, right? These micro stress doses. Because for me, immediately a thought comes up, well, those are small things. You know, the email inbox, the, the rushing to get my kid to their practice, but it's all of those things combined. Like that's not a line coming your way, but it adds up. Is that right? Absolutely. And this, you know, I remember, Sean, when I um, sat down to write this book, I was trying to figure out how do you simplify stress? How do you really get across in a very simple, non-judgmental way what you're talking about? Because I think we ignore stress a bit. We, it's, we talk about it all the time. We know that we're a stressed out culture, but I'm not sure what that means. Many of us don't know what it means or what we can do about it. So the way I simplify it is this. The first thing to say is we've all got our own personal stress threshold, right? And that will vary. Yours may be different from mine. It may even vary from day to day depending on how, how we slept and all kinds of different things. And I made the case that it's that threshold that's important. When you get to your threshold, that's when things start to go wrong. So how, can, how do I explain that even further? Well, I said we've got two kinds of stress, right? We've got macro stress doses, right? And these are the, you know, these are the really really traumatic things that may happen. You know, this could be physical abuse. This could be uh, a bereavement. This could be a relationship breakup. You know, these things are what I call macro stresses. They are big hits of stress that we do need to process and we may need to see someone to help us with that. Yeah. But what I'm primarily talking about is the opposite of that, which are these micro stress doses, or as I call them in the book, these MSDs. Now, what is an MSD? An MSD, as you've just really demonstrated, is a small dose of stress that in isolation we can handle, right? With no problem. One of these things, I've got to pick my kids up, I need to rush there and get them, no problem. It's when they start to add up one on top of another, they get you closer and closer to your own personal stress threshold. And when you hit your threshold, that's when things go wrong. That's when your back goes. That's when an innocent email from your boss suddenly becomes problematic. Mm -hmm. That's when we fall out with our partners mm -hmm. or scream at our kids because we've hit our threshold. It wasn't necessarily the last stressor in our life that caused it. That was just you know, the straw that broke the camel's back. It's the final piece that gets us to our threshold. And I make the case that many of us are leaving our house in the morning having already been exposed to 10 or 15 micro stress doses. Mm -hmm. So 
I'll give you an example. What is, a, what is a common scenario these days? A common scenario is people are stressed out at work. They come back late. They don't want to go to sleep because they want to unwind. They want some time for themselves. So they start watching Netflix, okay? And then one episode turns into two, which turns into three. I get that. I have done this before. I am not being, I'm not judging people for doing this. But let's say you go to bed at midnight because you finally feel that, hey, I've, I've unwound from the day and I've got to be up at 6.30 for work tomorrow. So you go to bed, right? You set your alarm for 6.30. So you go to bed and let's assume you're in a deep sleep, right? So you're in a deep sleep. Your alarm goes off at 6.30 in the morning. Boom, that is micro-stress dose number one because that's jolted you out of your deep sleep. You look at your phone, you look at it and go, ah, I've got a bit more time. Let me just put snooze on. You put snooze on. Six minutes later, again, the alarm goes off. Micro-stress dose number two. Then what might you do? You might go, ah, let me look at my phone. Quickly look at email. Oh man, there's three work emails from yesterday I didn't respond to. I need to do that today. MSD number three. Then you quickly flip onto Instagram and you see, oh man, why is that person having a go at me for my last post? They're having a little niggle at me, mm. MSD number four. Then you realize, oh man, I've been in bed for half an hour just doing this stuff. I'm gonna be late for work. I need to get up and get out. MSD number five. And you can quickly see how before we've even left the house in the morning, we've had 15 micro stress doses. Why is that a problem? That's a problem because it means you now are much closer to your own personal stress threshold. That means it won't take much in the day before you get and before you flip over. So, you know, my approach is not just about re reducing the stress in your life, because, you know, I get it. Some people have got super stressful lives. Maybe I can't reduce all the stressors in their life. You know, if you're a single mom with two kids and you're working two jobs, you know what? That is a significant amount of stress in your life. Even if you cannot remove the stress though, you can make yourself more resilient by reducing how many micro stress doses you've been exposed to, but also with some simple techniques that we can all use. So I, I don't know, I think that micro stress dose is something that is really taking off in the UK. People really like that as an idea to help them identify and, and, and think about stress. Yeah, yeah, man, so powerful. Uh, it reminds me of WMDs, you know, weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. You know, these micro stress doses in the way that they influence our lives. And what's so cool is that so for years, I've been talking about a different version of this, and I call it your overall stress load. And this is the first time I've seen it in book form and you detailing out like how it all can take place and just put so much on top of you and you don't even realize it. And we're really just kind of putting ourselves at a disadvantage before we even get into the day a lot of times. And so, man, so fascinating. And this is the first time niggle has been said on the show, by the way. What did we, I say? Niggle. niggle. <laughs> so, British term. Yeah. And this is, we before you even came in here, I was telling my guys, my team, I was like, yeah, he's going to have a cool accent. You know, just get ready for it. You know, so man, thank you so much for sharing that. And if you could, before we go any further, just to point out something important that Obviously, and just for you to speak on this, stress isn't all bad, Yeah, right? There's an upside to it as well. 100%, and I think we've all gotta be super careful when we talk about stress, and it's a good reminder for me that not all stress is bad. Stress is normal. We need stress to perform and function. It's the right kind of stress in the right dose at the right time. You know, if you love your job, let's say, and you are adequately slept, you know, and your job is stressful, yeah. it may not have much of an impact. You may be thriving, you may thrive on that stress. It's like most things, right? A little bit is good, too much is problematic. And I try and illustrate that in a, in a graph in the book so to really help people understand it. But I don't know, we can take an example. 
Um, yeah, what's a regular example from normal life? A cup of coffee, right? So many people use caffeine uh, to help them. You know, now we can argue whether it's helping them or not. Mm. That's a separate conversation. But I think we know the feeling. Those of us who are habituated to, to drinking caffeine, sometimes we need one or two cups to get us going, right? So that's a little bit of that caffeine stress, if you will, helps you perform, helps get you in the right state. Too much, if you have a couple more extra cups, two, three more, many of us know that feeling. We start to feel jittery. We start to feel anxious. It's like diminishing returns. You, you see what I mean? It's yeah, like the, the right amount can get you in the zone. Right. Too much becomes problematic. To make it scientific, uh, cortisol, which is the primary stress response hormone in the body, a little bit of cortisol. So if you have to give a, a public speaking event or someone listening to this has to present to their team at work and they get a bit nervous, a little bit of cortisol, like if you feel a bit stressed, helps you perform, right? You think more clearly. You can pull things out of your memory much more effectively. But too much stress, right? And your brain is fried and you, you literally cannot think and you can't perform. It's about the right amount of stress. And I think, you know, what, what does a little bit of cortisol do? It helps your brain work super well. What does too much cortisol do? It kills nerve cells in your brain's hippocampus. That's the memory center of your brain. And look, I don't say this to scare people, but we now know that chronic stress is causative in the development of Alzheimer's disease, mm. right? It's not something we think about. You know, we, yes, we're worried about it, but we don't think how our day-to-day -day actions can impact Alzheimer's. There are many other factors to consider as well, but chronic stress is one of those. And here's the thing with Alzheimer's, it doesn't just develop overnight. You don't even get it like just one year before you have symptoms. Alzheimer's disease starts 20 to 30 years before you get it in your brain. Mm. So I worry when I see this society of chronic stress, when I see the World Health Organization call stress the health epidemic of the 21st century, and, and you see the research on it with Alzheimer's, I worry that many of us, we're, we're living these busy, overloaded lives, that we take stress for granted, and we don't realize the impact it's having not only on our short-term health, but also our long-term health. Yeah, that's so true, so true. For me, it, when, when I think about beneficial stress, I immediately think of exercise. Yeah. And we know that we, our body, it's a trigger for adaptation. But when we continuously put that stress on us and we're not recovering from the stress, yeah. that's when things break down. And you share in the book so brilliantly the fact that stress actually can do the same thing. It can make your brain stronger, but too much stress, too many of these micro doses or even a macro dose of stress can change our, literally change our brain, the structure of our brain, the performance of our brain in a negative way and will hypersensitize us to more stress. Yeah. So can you talk about that? I think it was like feed forward or something it's like that. It's a feed forward about? cycle. Look, all these things, you gotta understand that the brain is always responding to the information you feed it. It's always adapting. So the more stress you have, the more chronic and unrelating your stress is, mm. your brain's gonna to adapt to be able to function in that environment, but it, it doesn't do that good a job. I mean, when talking about what the brain, talking about how stress affects the brain, um, I think a really useful thing, a really practical way of looking at that, that people I think will resonate with is this whole idea of downtime. Okay, so I think one of the big, big problems I see in society is that we've lost downtime. Downtime has been slowly eroded away. It's been stolen from us. Every single moment of the day, 
if we have nothing to do, we, we pick up our phones. We're now absorbing, we're, we're, we're reading new information, we're learning new things, we're reacting to what's going on around us. But we're here in Santa Monica recording this, right? If you were here, I reckon 10 years ago, and you walked into a cafe, right? Or, or a bar or a restaurant or whatever. You walked into a coffee place, let's say, and there's a queue. I bet you 10 years ago that people would be looking around, they'd be daydreaming, they might bump into a friend or a work colleague. They might be looking at the, you know, the pastries and think, oh, "Am I going to have this today? Am I going to resist?" Right? But they, they, they'd, they'd be, they'd be switched off a little bit. Mm -hmm. If you go into any, if we walked out of here now, went to the the nearest coffee place, and you see the line, what is everyone doing? On their phone. We're on our phones, right? Yeah. We're on our phones, and you might ask, "Well, why is that a problem?" The reason that's a problem is because your brain needs downtime. So. We used to think, Sean, that when we switched off from a task in front of us that our brain went to sleep, but it's not true. We've realized in the last few years when we switch off, there's a part of our brain called the default mode network or the DMN that goes into overdrive. Right, so what does that part of the brain do? It does many things. Two things it does, it helps you to solve problems and be more creative. Mm. Right, so this is the exact reason why people, so many of us have our best ideas when we go for a walk or we're in the shower. I mean, I get some of my best ideas in the shower, mm. right? Why is that? It's because, because you've switched off, your brain tries to solve problems for you, right? Is that making sense? Yeah, absolutely. It, and it's absolutely. so powerful. And downtime, we don't see the, the problem with always being on our phones, right? And always consuming information. Your brain needs downtime to thrive. Yeah. And this is why I'm so keen to say, even like, I go into a lot of uh, companies, big companies talk about employee wellness. And one of my top tips is have a tech-free lunch break, even if it's just for 15 minutes, right? Put your phone in the drawer, go outside, have a walk. It sounds so simple, right? I made a, a, a different show last year for ITV in the UK on stress. And as part of that show, we got to follow three people. We measured their stress levels literally for three days, like minute by minute. And we were tracking what they were doing and how it was affecting their stress levels. We did something called heart rate variability monitoring on them, which I think you've covered before on the yeah. podcast. And essentially a high HRV, so a high heart rate variability, is a good thing. It means that your body is able to cope and adapt to the stress around you. A low reading when your heart beats it's very much like a metronome, is actually slightly problematic. It, it, it suggests that we've had too much stress on our body and our body's not able to cope and adapt. Now, one person in particular, right, he was, I'm gonna guess he was around 40 from recollection, a 40-year-old guy, he was a manager in his local company, and he took his job super seriously. Super, super seriously. He came in early, he worked through lunch, he stayed late, he'd go home, when he'd go home to unwind, he'd drink more alcohol than he wanted to. It was impacting his relationship with his wife. It was impacting his sleep and he wanted help. Now, I could see on his work days that you looked at his stress readings, they would start to go up throughout the morning. At lunchtime, because he didn't take a break, they'd keep going up. By the time he left home, he'd had a huge accumulation of stress and that would affect his relationship and, and impact his alcohol habits. Mm. All I asked him to do, Sean, was this. I said, listen, what I'd love you to do at lunchtime, put your phone in your drawer for 15 minutes and go for a walk, right? He goes, yeah, okay, I can do that, fine. He goes and does that for about a week. The following week, we retrack everything. What happens? 
You see on those work days, his stress levels go up in the morning as before. At lunchtime, they go right back down to baseline. They reset. And in the afternoon, they hardly go up to anywhere near the same level. So what does that do? That means that when he goes home, it has a knock-on consequence. So look, objectively with the data, I've seen a big difference. But what's more interesting to me is subjectively, what does he think? What does he feel? Not what does the, the tech say? He says, Doc, I feel like a different person. I've got more energy. I'm more productive in the afternoon. I'm now leaving earlier than I'm meant to finish. I'm leaving home early. Mm. I'm drinking less alcohol and I'm closer with my wife now, right? From a 15 minute lunch wow. break. I'm so keen to make health accessible to people. Like wellness, I think has become, for many people, they think, oh, that's great, but it's, it's expensive, it's inaccessible. Every single one of us has the ability to have a 15-minute tech-free lunch break every day. And I guarantee if people are skeptical, try it for seven days and see the difference. Because yes, that, that's the kind of a story which you can sort of think about, but your brain, your default mode network, it wants to help you. It wants to be more creative. It wants to help solve problems for you. But you can't do that unless you give it downtime. It's so valuable. The The problem with it, though, is that it's too simple. Too simple. You know, it's too simple. And listen, there was, a, and I mentioned this on a past episode, um, if, if especially a lot of people that listen to the show, they're wanting to perform at a high level in all the areas of their lives. And if you're talking about that work performance, if you're talking about tapping into that creativity, like you mentioned, and problem solving, the idea that not pressing and beating yeah. ourselves down, instead unplugging, it seems counterintuitive, but here's the thing. And this was Stanford University. They found that just a simple 15 minute walk, 11 to 15 minutes, increased something called divergent thinking, which is this thinking wow. outside the box by 60% for the test subjects, you know, just getting out and going for a walk. So that tip of unplugging. And so what I've done just personally in my own life is because you've got to consciously yeah. have yourself do this. If I do find myself in a line, I literally, I people watch. I'll like put the phone away because it's easy. To, it's like a slot machine yeah, in your yeah. pocket and just be there, be present. When you get on an elevator, right? Especially if there's other people on the elevator, you know, it's kind of weird. You grab your, I just, I just become present, you know, and taking those little small opportunities. And one of the great things that, uh, since we've moved, because before I like lived in the woods, it was like a whole thing. I never know if like an animal is going to run up on me. Mm -hmm. Uh, but now, like, I, I live in a neighborhood, and so I'll go for a 10-minute walk twice a day. And that's the one thing that I build into my days to actually unplug. And I have some great ideas when I do that. Do you, do you go without your phone? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And a matter of fact, and I want to make this statement, it's dangerous. Like, if you're, walk, if you're out walking and there's, like, cars yeah. and all this stuff, and you've got headphones on listening to, I want you to listen to me, by the way. <laughs> but I just, I want you to also be safe. You yeah. know, like, I saw somebody... Uh, was it yesterday morning or, or this morning? Uh, it was this morning. And so they were running by, they got their, their pods in, the AirPods, and just run, and there's cars just going up and down the street. And I'm just like, bro, just, you know, like you could just take a little you time, yeah. you know, and just unplug and it's gonna help your brain. I, I didn't know about that Stanford University study. That's so interesting to me that, that just 11 to 15 minutes, yeah. And I suspect a lot of that will be because of this default mode network that we've been talking about because it does help you be more creative. And, you know, when I go into these like companies and these big tech companies to talk to them about employee wellness, 
there's a tendency to go, yeah, I want to perform better. What supplement do I need to take? You know, what do I need to do? What extra thing do I need to put into my life in order to perform? And often it's just simply about taking something out. And this is like, we are living in this culture now, aren't we? Look, I love Santa Monica, right? I've been here for like 10 days. You go into every shop here, you can, not every shop, but many of them, you can, you can take supplements, you can buy a coffee, it can be an activated coffee. You can get a shot of um, the latest kind of brain boosting supplement, right? I get all that. I, I love all that stuff, right? Don't get me wrong. I, I've, I'm, I'm interested in the research behind all that stuff, but let's just break it down. Yes, yeah. Switch your phone off for 10 minutes a day you will get a lot of those brain enhancing benefits from just doing that. And that is free. That is accessible. You know, I, I know I said this, Sean, but I take this so seriously. I have worked with wealthy, affluent patients. I've also worked in, in deprived communities for years. And I'm super passionate that we have overcomplicated health and that actually good quality health advice should be available to everybody. And actually, if we can simplify and show you, like every single thing I've recommended in my book is free, Yeah. right? You can buy apps to help you do th certain things if you want, but pretty much everything else is free, which means actually we just need to be empowered with the information and we need to pick one thing and go, you know, I'm gonna try that one small thing for the next seven days and reassess. And so the tip that you give people, I'd say, yeah, why not mimic what Sean does for 10 minutes twice a day, go for a walk without your phone. Do it for seven days and see the impact on your well-being, on your energy, but also on your relationships around you. The other thing I think, and this is why a quarter of the book on stress is on relationships, is, and to take this theme of kind of downtime and not switching off, one of the reasons why so many of our relationships are under strain these days, and there are many reasons, but one of them is, is that even if we are with the people that we love, let's say our partners, boyfriend, girlfriend, wife, or our friends, or our kids, physically, geographically, we're in the same place. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but you know where I'm going with this, in your heads, you know, we're, we're distracted by our phones, we're a million miles away. You know, you've got a cliche now that husband and wife are lying in bed together, the whole society is complaining that people aren't having enough sex and libido is a big, big issue. The cliche is, is that you're physically in the same bed together, but you could be millions of miles away because you're both looking at your own customized feeds, you know, your own uh, customized Netflix channels. You're no longer connecting in the same way. And I think it's a serious, serious problem. So I love technology as much as the next guy, right? But I think we just have to be mindful and go, hey, maybe, I'll go for a walk twice a day without my phone. Maybe like at dinner times, we're gonna have a rule where we don't have phones there. So we actually, we can connect. And they sound so simple, these things. These things were in culture until about 15 years ago. We did them naturally. That's how quickly things have actually escalated. And I think we almost just have to go back to how we lived 15, 20 years ago. And a lot of these stress problems will actually be a lot reduced. Yeah. And we're going to talk about more of these specific solutions because you you cover some very specific domains and how we can address some of these stresses in our lives. And we're going to do that right after this quick break. So sit tight. We'll be right back. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I was obsessed with juice. All right, I'm talking about the juice boxes. Capri Suns? You remember when Capri Suns came out? The complication of getting that straw into that little plastic bag and shooting it all over your oneself as a child? Everybody had to experience it, but the Capri Sun was delicious. 
All right, it went from there to, you know, getting a little bit more fancy and having, quote, tropical punch. Became a big fan of like Hawaiian punch. And that was my thing. I wasn't a big fan of sodas. I was getting the juice. But here's the thing. It wasn't really juice. All right, if you would read the package, it would literally say 0% juice in the juice. It was trickery, trickery. And here's the thing, how can they create these flavors? Uh, there's this incredible technology. We have a gas chromatograph that you can synthesize and, and extract and find those flavors and create them artificially. So what's the point in going and getting a real strawberry if you can create that flavor and that smell? And so we really kind of found ourselves in a nutrition black hole because of that and providing these things to our, our kids and our society as if everything is normal, but it's not normal. We know now that those fake juices were hurting us, hurting our metabolism, uh, introducing a tremendous amount of sugar, very uh, processed sugar that can really cause massive issues, whether it's with our, our brain health, whether it's with our metabolism and our ability to burn fat. Matter of fact, the name Tropical Punch, where does it even come from? It's really like a punch to your pancreas, all right? It's a nice uppercut. And so today though, the game has changed, all right? Now we have this updated knowledge and we have the ability to create a juice that's really special and something that's available no matter where you go because it's been low temperature processed to retain all of these vital nutrients and these wonderful, many of them red superfoods and delivering not just a similar flavor sensation, you know, back in the day we had crystal light. Don't forget about crystal light. But this is something that's actually going to add to your health and not take away. All right, my kids are also huge fans of the red juice formula as well. And this is why. One of the hallmark ingredients here in the red juice formula is acai. You've heard of acai. It's hot. It's hot right now. 10 times more antioxidants than just about any fruit that you can name. It's an antioxidant powerhouse that also assists your body in producing its own endogenous uh, antioxidants, which are really the most powerful forms of these things that really help to keep us younger, longer. All right, we've got some cranberries in there. All right, cranberries are great for your digestion and for your bladder. Pomegranate, again, super hot right now. Pomegranate is full of uh, antioxidants as well and found to be beneficial and study after study for your cardiovascular health as well as strawberry you've got some blueberry in there too raspberry great source of vitamin c vitamin c is great for your immune system for generating creating new tissues vitamin c is great for your skin and the list goes on and on because we've also got some other super herbs in this formula too cordyceps rhodiola ginseng what am i talking about here i'm talking about red juice from organifi all right, you need to get your hands on this red juice. It is amazing. It tastes good and also it is incredible for you. This is kicking the whole concept of these barrel juices and juice boxes that I used to get messed up on when I was a kid right down the stairs, all right? This is the real deal, all right? Again, low temperature process to actually retain the nutrients so you're actually getting what is promoted to be in the red juice itself. So pop over, check them out. It's Organifi.com forward slash model. You get 20% off of the red juice right now. All right, that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com forward slash model for 20% off the red juice formula, the green juice, the gold, everything that they carry. All right, but I highly, highly recommend getting your hands on the red juice. I like to have it in the afternoon, a little pick-me-up to give a little bit of a jolt and supporting your energy, but coming from earth-grown nutrients, real food. 
All right. So again, pop over, check them out. Organifi.com forward slash model for 20% off. And now back to the show. All right. We're back and we're talking with best-selling author, Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. And he's got a brand new book for us, available for us here in the U.S., The Stress Solution. And this is an important book to add to your library. It's loaded with very actionable, as he mentioned before the break, free things that we can do to help to reduce the stress in our lives. And in the book, you cover some very specific areas. You talk about, uh, in these four sections, purpose, relationships, body, and mind, and some very practical things. But the one that really stood out for me and you started the book with was talking about how purpose relates to stress. And this was just fascinating for me. Immediately, I was like, yes, that's the thing. But can you just break down why you felt that was important to put into the book? Yeah, look, um, the science is pretty clear. Like, Not having a sense of purpose in your life is associated with much poorer health outcomes uh, across multiple conditions. It's associated with much less happiness, lower income levels. So many things are associated with not having a sense of purpose in our lives. And I feel that fundamentally a life which has no meaning and purpose in it is inherently a stressful life, right? We can talk about all the other things, but actually not having a reason to get up in the morning, not actually knowing where you're going with your life, I think it's incredibly stressful. Now, I appreciate that even simply saying that can sound stressful to someone if they're hearing that and they're going, yeah, okay, fine, but I don't like my job. I don't like where I live. Um, what can I do about that? And so why I started the book with this, because I think it is probably one of the most important things. And yes, of course, breathing, exercise, meditation, nature, all those things are important and I cover them all and I give practical tips in them. But I think the meaning and purpose piece is probably the most important. And I think it's one of the freshest it's a new idea for people to latch onto. And so, Sean, a few years ago, I came across this Japanese concept, Ikigai. Have you come across it before? Yeah. I was on Facebook, and one of my friends posted, uh, they said that these four circles, right, these four different circles, and where they intersect in the middle is your Ikigai. It's how the Japanese live. It's their, the way of living your life so you have meaning and purpose. And the four things are this. You need to find one thing in your life that you're good at, that pays you money, that you love, and that the world needs. And I thought, okay, that was great. I like that. I would like a bit of ikigai in my life, <laughs> right? But then I would use this concept with my patients, and I talked to them about this. And for many of them, they just found it too intimidating. They found, yeah, man, that sounds great, but how, how am I gonna get there, right? And, and actually, on the UK book tour back in January, I remember I gave a big talk in London and at the Q&A at the end, a Japanese student put her hand up and she said, Dr. Chassie, look, I'm very familiar with Ikigai. It's part of my culture, but I found it very stressful my whole life. It's an impossible ideal for me to live up to. Do you see what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, it, yeah. it, it's great if you can get it, but many of us don't feel we can. Yeah. And so I created a new framework in the book mm -hmm. called the Live Framework to help people start to find meaning and purpose. Um, it's like called the Live Framework, L-I-V-E, L for love, I for intention, V for vision, and E for engagements. Now, we don't necessarily need to go into the whole thing, but I think the first one is super, super interesting for people. And I think it will really shed some light onto their lives. L is for love, right? So that is about passion. So the research tells us this, Sean. It tells us that regularly doing things that we love makes us more resilient to stress. Hmm. Yeah. But conversely, being chronically stressed 
makes it really hard for us to experience pleasure in day-to-day -day things. Hmm. So it works both ways. Yeah. So passion is a huge part of meaning and purpose. It's a huge part of stress. It's a huge part of health. I had a patient maybe a year ago, 52-year-old chap, right? He was, the, um, he was the CFO of a plastics company local to me. And he came in to see me. And he was, he was married. He had two kids. He had a good job. You know, he was living in a pretty decent house. You know, from the outside, his life was good. But he came in to see me. He said, Dr. Chastity, look, um, some days I kind of struggle to get out of bed in the morning. Um, my motivation's down a little bit. I feel a bit flat about things. Is this what depression is? And so I, we were chatting. I started to try and understand what was going on in his life. I ran some tests, some bloods, they were all normal. And I said, look, how's your job? Your job's okay, I mean, I don't really enjoy it, but I've got to do it, you know, I've got a mortgage, I've got a family to feed, that's why I do my job. I said, okay, how's your marriage? Yeah, so-so, I don't really see my wife that much. Yeah, I guess it's okay. Very, very indifferent. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, have you got any hobbies? What do you do in the week that you enjoy? He said, I don't really have any hobbies, I'm too busy. I said, what about the weekends? Weekends, you know, I've got to do all the house chores, household chores. I've got to take the kids to their sports classes. I don't have time, Doc, for hobbies. I said, okay, did you ever have a hobby? Yeah, you know, like as a kid, as a teenager, I used to love train sets. Hmm. I said, okay, have you got a train set at home? Yeah, I've got one in the attic, but I haven't seen it in years. It's probably, it's probably dusty and, you know, got cobwebs on it. I said, look, what I'd love you to do when you get home tonight is get your train set out. Now, I fully appreciate it's probably not the advice he was expecting from his doctor, <laughs> but that's the advice I gave to him. Anyway, I didn't see him for a few weeks, right? And that's not uncommon. We simply, we have so many patients, we can't follow everybody up. But three months later, I just finished my morning clinic. I, I was in the car park about to do some home visits for the like elderly patients who can't come into the practice. And I bumped into his wife. I said, hey, look, how's your husband getting on? She said, Oh man, Dr. Chassie, I just want to say thank you. I feel like I've got the guy I married back again. He comes home from work, he plays on his train set, he's on eBay buying collector's items, <laughs> and he's subscribed to like some monthly magazine now. I thought, okay, that's great. I, I felt really good. I still hadn't seen him. Three months later, I was looking at my clinic list and his name's on it. He had done some blood tests and he was coming in to see me for the results. So I said, hey, how are you getting on compared to six months ago? said, Doc, I feel like a different person. Life is good. I've got energy. I feel motivated and I'm concentrating much better. I said, okay, great. How's your job? My job, I love it now. I'm really getting a lot out of my job. How's your relationship with your wife? So good. It's the best it's been for years. Mm. So Sean, I'm going to ask you a question. Did that chap, did that man have a mental health problem? I mean, he certainly had symptoms that would be consistent with a mental health problem. You know, yeah. I could have diagnosed him with something yeah. like depression, potentially. Yeah. But it's not what he really had, a deficiency of passion in his life. Mm. And when we corrected his passion deficiency, when he corrected his passion deficiency, not only does he feel better in himself, now that the job that he didn't like so much, he's enjoying and getting more out of, now his relationship's starting to improve. And this is why I'm so passionate about passion, yeah. right? We talk about health. We talk about the amount of vegetables we're eating. We're talking about the workouts we do or don't do. And of course, that's important. But I want people to give passion the same priority as they will give 
to the number of vegetables they have on their plate, right? It is so important. So the prescription I give to people is, can you give yourself a dose of pleasure every day? Even if it's just for five minutes, it could be reading a book, going for a walk, listening to a podcast, right? It could be, you know, it could be coming home from work, putting on your computer, going on YouTube, finding your favorite comedian and laughing for five minutes. I don't care what it is, but that's my challenge to everybody listening to this podcast. Can you give yourself five minutes of pleasure and passion every day? And the second um, request I'd make of the audience, I know it's your audience, but if you don't mind, my request I'd make of them is, have a think. When was the last time you did something in your life that you really, really loved? Something you did not just to post on social media, but something you did because it makes you feel good. Hmm. If it's not been for a while, that's okay. But I would suggest today at some point, you look at your calendar, you make some calls, and you schedule it into your diary. Passion is important for your health. It's as important, I would argue, as any other component of your health. Absolutely. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, This could be roller skating. This could be hula hooping. This could be, uh, you know, walking your dog. This could be basketball. When we think about purpose, we tend to just immediately jump to what we do for a living, for our job. And you just gave a great example that him doing something that he loved fed back into his work and he found greater love there as well. So please keep that in mind because we all have this opportunity to start this today. But I think it's a matter of giving ourselves permission to do something that we love, which is crazy we have to say that, but it's just like today we're so distracted and we're so, quote, busy. But I'm telling you right now, there are people who are far busier than you who are far happier because they've given themselves permission to do something that they love. For sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, the reason I share these examples is I really want to make health accessible for people. I don't want people to think, oh, you know, meaning and purpose is quite lofty. It's quite, many people might feel it's quite unattainable. Like, depending on where your life is currently right now, that idea of having meaning and purpose may may be quite stressful to think about it. Mm. And I think passion is a beautiful entry point because you don't have to change anything else. Just start putting a little bit of passion into your daily life. And what you'll find is it starts to feed you. It starts to nourish you. And over the coming weeks, over the coming months, other things in your life will start to become clear. And it's like a knock-on effect. You don't have to go from zero to hero. You don't have to suddenly quit your job, find the job of your dreams, You know, find the partner of your dreams, the dream house, That's not what I'm talking about. Take these small steps and the small steps will take care of the big steps later. Mm, Yes, yes, yes. Man, this is so good. And I really want to illustrate this point here and how purpose and passion translates into the, like your real tangible health. I wasn't planning on sharing this, but I just sent this to somebody today. And um, I just had a conversation with them about it. It's actually Eric Thomas, ET, who was just on the show recently. And this was a new study and this was published. This is a actually brand new study. This wow. is nuts. Where do you hear this? Brand new study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, Current Open. It uncovered that people who didn't have a strong life purpose, which for them this was defined as a self-organizing life aim that stimulates goals for them, right? That's a very tangible way to put yeah. uh, purpose in mind. And so here's what they found. These folks who didn't have a strong life purpose were more likely to die than those who had a specific uh, life purpose and die specifically from cardiovascular diseases. Now, here's how it translated to be. This study included 7,000 American adults between the ages of about 50 to 60. 
They found that people without a strong life purpose were more than twice as likely to die over the course of the four-year study period compared to those who had one. This is nuts, right? So again, this isn't causation, but this is a very interesting correlation. And it's something that matters, you know, because we're talking about invoking something that does, it's a stress solution. And we understand today, thanks to you, how detrimental stress can be. And so we have to incorporate something that we love. Give yourself permission, not just for your own mental health and well-being and happiness, but literally this can protect your life. Yeah, Sean, please do send me that study as well. I'd love to see it after this podcast. I, that sounds super, super interesting. The, the point that also came to, to my into my head as you were just describing that is, you know, guys, look, I guess a lot of people will be listening to your show and trying to get tips on their well-being. They wanna improve the way that they're feeling, improve their diet, improve other aspects of their health. What you will find is when you start to engage in regular passion, you will find it gets easier to make those other decisions. You'll find it easier to make healthy food choices because it will it nourishes such a crucial part of us that actually then we will feel less of a need to compensate and, and actually soothe the stresses in our life with sugar and chips. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's all connected. And hey, could there be, I wouldn't say an easier, but a more inspiring tip to do? Do something that you love, right? Yeah. It's not like you have to do something you don't like. We're asking you guys to do something that you love. Whatever it might be. Whatever it is, right? It could be some weird stuff too. If you're like super into the Smurfs, you yeah. know, like my man was in into trains and it just like lit up his life. Twerk classes, whatever it might be. Yeah. You know, um, I can't believe I just said that. But you know, like the uh, the movie Hustlers just came out, so it jumped into my mind, Jennifer Lopez, shout out. So if you're trying to do a pole dancing class, if it's you're into shoes and you just wanna study all the Jordans and just, there's so many things that might speak to your soul. If it's music, just give yourself permission, add yeah. it in every day. This is so awesome. So one of the things that you talk about in the book, and this was a really interesting study that you noted, and I wanna talk about, I think this is one of the most powerful tools that we have access to that we're not utilizing. Uh, it's a 2012 study, you noted, that if we change the way we think about a stressful event, we can improve our physical health and also the way our brain reacts to these micro-stress doses. And what the study was, it compared the group of folks who didn't reframe their stress and the participants in the study who reframed their micro-stress doses, so thinking about them differently, because micro-stress doses happen to everybody, but reframing them, they had lower blood pressure, higher attention levels, and even improved their efficiency of their heart muscles. Nuts, It right? is nuts. It's, and this is why I'm such a huge fan of daily reframing practices. So yeah. people, look, we've got something called negativity bias as humans, right? This is probably what's kept us alive and, for, and survived for so long. You know, we always turn our attention to the negative. So, you know, at the end of your day, you know, if you've had a stressful day and a busy day and you think about it, often the negative stuff will come up. Oh, you know, what happened? Or someone, someone ignored me in the corridor at work or, you know, whatever. Someone bumped into me in the cafe and they were rude or the waitress wasn't that nice. Whatever it is, we come back to the negatives. And there are so many beautiful things that you can do in the, in the evening that don't take long, that can just reframe the day for you. And as you said with that study, when you reframe, actually it changes the way your brain processes things. So mm -hmm. I'll tell you one thing I do, Sean, with my um, family, like when I'm at home and I make it a huge priority that obviously I'm in LA at the moment, but when I'm back in the UK and I'm in my house, we all sit and have dinner together. Mm -hmm. and 
There's no technology there. It's a, it's a big thing for us. And we play a little game. And the game we play is that everyone has to go around the table and answer three, well, it used to be three questions, it's now five questions, but I'll start with the three questions to keep it super simple. What have I done today to make somebody else happy? What has somebody else done today to make me happy? And what have I learned today? Now, it's such a powerful game, but I actually thought this is gonna be really good for my kids, mm. but it's actually really good for my wife and I as well. Mm. Yeah. Because you, you very, you very quickly start to reframe the day. You start to look at the positive things and there is positive in every single day if we can start training our mind to look for it. So the practice is about training yourself every day to start looking at the positives. A few months ago, my daughter said to me, hey daddy, you know, at school today, Annabelle opened the door for me on the way out to lunch break. You know, that's a small thing. I very much hope that what I'm doing by that is not only improving my own health, but I'm also modeling to my children. I'm, hope, I'm hoping that actually they're starting to learn on a daily basis. Let's start looking at the positives that happen in, in everyday life. So that's one game that people might find useful. Um, if you've had a negative experience in the day, right? A great way to reframe it is to actually write it down. Like if you start writing it down, it's very hard to be as critical to yourself as when you keep it in your head. In our head, we can make it, we can turn it into a big thing. As soon as you start writing it down, you start to realize how ridiculous some of the self-critical behavior can be sometimes. Mm. It sounds, it just sounds silly when you write it out and you can start to be a lot more rational. The other way you can try and do it, this is another tip for people, if they struggle with negative experiences and they can't switch off from it. And these practices also help, help our sleep quality, which you yeah. well know. Right. But another one is to imagine you are a commentator on your life. Like if you're a, like in a sports game that people are watching, there's a commentator, right? You guys call them commentators here as yeah, well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, you're a commentator. <laughs> imagine you are commentating on your life. So let's say there was a meeting with your boss and something negative happened. In your own head, you can turn this into something that it never was. If you pretend you're a commentator and you also write it down, you say, okay, so I came to that meeting. Actually, my boss was actually super tired. He's not performing well today because his kids weren't doing so well. That's why he's tired. That's why he didn't really look at me and give me the attention. It wasn't because of the way I was feeling. Look, some of these tips may resonate with people. Some of them won't. Choose the ones that do resonate with you. I will say that that gratitude practice that I play with my family is fantastic. A lot of my friends now, sometimes we'll play it with my friends when we're out for dinner. We'll play it together. It sounds a little bit it sounds a little bit California, right? Mm -hmm. But it's great and it's so powerful. Yeah, I love that. I love that so much. That idea of kind of taking this meta perspective and zooming out, because a lot of times a big part of stress is the rumination, right? Yeah. We just ruminate on the issue over and over again. Again, it just lights up that stress part of our brain. And what we tend to do is to overreact, obviously. And to take a step back and like the commentator, I love that example, right? So it's like you got your your boss and here's his boss. He's had a long day and his children, you know, one of his kids are at home sick and he's and then here comes Sean walking into the room, all in his feelings and emotional. And he's already, you know, dealt with 15 micro stresses and so he's going to be hypersensitive to, you know, and just kind of like tell the story from a meta perspective rather than being in it so deeply. And that starts to take some of the heat off of it, I think. And so you sharing this study about reframing, and if we could, can you give another example of what reframing is and kind of, because for me, as soon as I hear that a study like that, I think about, and I mentioned earlier, 
It's just, it's thinking about a stressor differently, right? Yeah, I think it's, reframing is literally, I mean, it's, you know, it can sound complicated, but it, it really is simply about looking at the same story from another perspective. Yes. yes. That's it. Yes. Ultimately, however you want to do that, you know, it doesn't matter. Like if you talk to a friend, for example, um, I don't know, and I guess a useful way to think about it is, it's a, you know, it's a bit of an Instagram cliche these days, but I think like a lot of cliches, it's the truth, right? It's kind of like, are you talking to yourself in the same way that you would talk to a friend? Like, let's say your friend had that same experience. You would say, hey, look, maybe your boss was tired, right? Maybe, you know, I'm sure you're reading too much into this situation. You know, you've been a really good employee. Um, I'm sure there was something else going on. I'm sure he's not going to fire you next week. You know, you would really you would really start looking at it with compassion and start to take the heat out of the situation. We can't do that sometimes ourselves. We struggle to do it ourselves. That's why writing practices are so useful. When you get it out of your head and down onto paper, suddenly, you know, you are literally taking the thoughts out of your head and putting them on the sheet of paper, like quite literally. And so there are so many tips in the book on how to reframe. Just choose one that works for you. Like a daily gratitude practice, whether it's that one or just three things that you're grateful for, it's not technically reframing, but it actually, it still helps in that whole sphere of basically, you just gotta understand this. We have a tendency as a human being to go to the negative, right? Unless you train the ability to go to the positive, you're never gonna be able to do it. We are, by and large, most of us are safe these days. Most of us, yeah. right? Of course, many of us aren't. But for human evolution, for millions of years, we've always been worried about our safety. So we, that negativity bias has kept us alive. But now where we're living these kind of comfortable lives that are pretty safe, um, you know, that, negative, that negativity bias is starting to harm us. And so it's like going to the gym. If you're trying to, if you're trying to perform in a race or you wanna be a better runner, or you wanna have you know, a better body, let's say that's your motivation. Unless you train regularly, that's not gonna happen. Unless we train positivity regularly, it's not gonna happen. Our default state is negativity. So you have to train it. And again, I'm not talking an hour a day. Some of these things take two, three minutes a day, yeah. right? That's the point. And my tip would be put it in as a regular part of your day somewhere. So for example, let's say you wanna do this before bed because we know that a practice of reframing, a practice of gratitude, absolutely improves sleep quality. It helps to switch off the stress in your mind before you go to bed. A little tip would be leave a notepad or a, a little journal that you like, right? I think this is important, that you like, not just a scrap piece of paper, a journal that you like with a pen on your bedside table. Then you're not having to motivate yourself every night. You just come up to your bed, you go there, you're gonna see it. It's like a visual prompt and reminder hey, why don't I just spend two minutes writing down a few things I'm grateful for? It can be that simple. It really can. It doesn't need to be this big, complicated process that requires minutes and hours of your time. Yeah, oh, so good, so good. So we are talking about these four sections in the book. We've got purpose, relationships, body, and mind. And I wanna to touch now, uh, if we can, really quickly on touch and on relationships, because you talk about the need, you know, it's like a actual physiological, biological need for touch and for intimacy. But these are, it's a little bit different the way that you paint it in the book and it just makes a lot of sense. Yeah, look, this, the whole, the whole research on human touch, if I'm honest, three years ago, I didn't know about it. 
I didn't know about it. I was filming, a, I think it was a BBC documentary a couple of years ago, and we were in Liverpool John Moores University, and I was interviewing this professor called Professor Francis McGlone, who's one of the world's leading researchers in touch. And he said this, human touch is not a sentimental human indulgence. It's a biological necessity, right? It's incredible. And then you look at his research and it blows you away. So let's try and break this down simply so people understand. We have got two different types of touch nerve fiber. We've got a fast nerve and a slow nerve and they do two completely different things. And before we get to touch, I'm just gonna illustrate this with pain because I think it's super easy for people to understand with pain. If you, Sean, are in your kitchen and you are heating something, you're cooking, right? And then your hand touches the boiling pan. In an instant, what happens? You pull your hand away, right? Instant, within milliseconds, it's like a reflex. That is the fast pain nerve fiber. That's transmitting the signal that this is hot. You need to take remedial action. Mm. A few seconds later is when the emotional quality of that pain kicks in. You might, you might feel like crying. You might feel a bit upset that that's happened. That's a different sensation, and that is mediated by the slow pain nerve fiber. Again, another way of thinking about it is this. If you've got kids, and this happened to me a few years ago, when my daughter was four years old, she fell over in the backyard. She fell on her knee. Mm -hmm. Immediately, she was just a little bit bemused. She was just rubbing her knee. Three to four seconds later is when she started to cry, mm -hmm. right? Because yeah. the fast nerve fiber tells you what's just happened. Oh, I've been hit on my knee. I've hurt my knee. A few seconds later, the with the slow pain nerve fiber, it's an emotional quality to that pain, right? The same thing happens with touch. So if I just like now, I touch you on your forearm, right? You know that Rongan has just touched me on my forearm. Okay, you know geographically where I've touched you. That's the fast touch nerve fiber. But there's also slow ones right? There are slow ones that actually are maximally stimulated when you stroke them. And when you stroke them at three to five centimeters per second. Now look, I get it. When we're stroking our children or our wives, we're not timing it and going, are yeah. we stroking at three to five centimeters <laughs> per second? But what's interesting is if you observe mothers, and they've done research on this, when yeah. you observe them stroking their children, yeah. they automatically lock into that speed. That is innate in us as human mm. beings. Now, when you stimulate these slow touch nerve fibers that are called CT afferents, if people want the scientific name, what happens? They go to a different part of the brain. They go to the emotional part of your brain. When you, when you stimulate these slow nerve fibers, the level of the stress hormone cortisol comes down. Your heart rate comes down. Your blood pressure comes down. Things called natural killer cells, which are part of your immune system, the way we fight off coughs and colds, that comes down all from being touched, right? So the case I'm trying to make is we have become a touch-averse society. I get it, there are many reasons for that, right? There's been lots of cases of inappropriate touch in society. But have there been some unintended consequences? Have we forgotten how fundamentally critical regular human touch is yeah. for us? And I, and I think we have. I'll tell you what's also interesting, Sean, these CT afferent slow touch nerve fibers, where do we get most of them on our body? Most of them are on our upper back and our shoulder. Hmm. Now think about it, why would evolution put a, a special type of nerve fiber that we need somebody else to stimulate for us? Why would they put that 
on a place of our body where we can't reach very easily. Mm. And I think it's me and Professor McGlone were talking about this and we think it's because humans are social beings. This is evolution's way of keeping us connected with people. You need someone around you. You need your tribe. You need someone to yeah. do that for you. It bonds us. And you know, to make it super meta and look at it in a different viewpoint, again, this is correlation. A few years ago in the NBA, they looked at basketball teams, right, at the start of the season. The basketball teams who had more touch with their teammates at the start of the season were the teams who finished at the top of the league, right? Again, correlation, but interesting nonetheless. Yeah. Research has shown if you go into a, uh, if you go out for a meal and the waiter or the waitress gives you the check and touches you on the shoulder when they give you the check, you tip more, right? Human touch is fundamental. We have neglected human touch. And so, you know, I'm talking about appropriate, safe human touch, of course, but I, uh, one of my recommendations is to keep a touch diary, right? For in one week, literally list every time you have appropriate, affectionate human touch, whether it's from your partner, your kids, even your friends, right? And whatever it is, the next week, try and double it. And you will start to feel a difference. So, you know, I, I'm really proud of that chat. I think mean, there's a lot of fresh information there yeah, that's not yeah. out there much in many health books I've read. And I think when people read that, I mean, that has absolutely changed my own behavior, what I do with my children, yeah. even what I do with my wife. Because when you understand, when you've seen the science on it, you're like, wow, well, it's so easy. It's free, right? So coming back to what I said yeah, before, yeah. you don't have to buy an expensive supplement. You're right back down to something that, it's simple, it's innate. And I, you know, this is slightly controversial, but I, I, make the, I think there's one part in the, uh, the book where I make the case that many of us, many of us know the curvy contours of our smartphones more than we do of our partners, <laughs> right? And I, it's slightly controversial, but I think there's an element of truth in it that we all kind of can resonate with. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Swipe up. Yeah, that's so funny, man. So funny. You know, this is... As you were describing, I'm immediately thinking about how I can implement this more conscientiously in my life. My wife and I were really great about this with our youngest son, Brayden, who's eight now. You know, and I, I immediately thought about that pattern. You know, just when I rub his hair or something like that. Uh, before each other, we have we have these little conflicts with each other. We we're very close and just intimate, very close couple. But when she actually rubs me. She tends to rub my, I'm a hairy, I'm a hairy fella. And she rubs my hair the opposite way. And I was like, babe, cats don't like that. I don't like it, you know? And so yeah. she's like, is more careful, right? And the same thing, like when I, I think about when I go and just I massage her shoulders and nine times out of 10, we've talked about, like, she'll be like, oh, that's so great. I need to get a massage. I'm giving you a massage. Yeah. Like she's just like going off to the next thing, she, you know, because of the tension or whatever. And so, but now, you know, I would be resistant because I don't want to tell her, like, I need a professional to step in here, or she doesn't want me to tell her that, you know, she's rubbing me yeah. like a, a bad cat. And how can we do these things because they matter? Like, let me just actually learn, okay, she's just saying that she enjoys this, right? And not be hypersensitive to it. And the same thing with me, you know, like she's trying, she's, she's extending love and touch. Let me not be so hypersensitive that, you know, I'm some kind of an alley cat or something. Yeah. Look, it can be tricky because some of us, we don't, you know, some people will be listening to this and be thinking, I don't actually like touch that much. And often that can come down to, not always, but often yeah. it's to do with how much we were touched as a kid. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And if 
you know, depending on what that relationship was like with our loved ones and maybe with our parents, that can impact our ability to sort of even want to receive touch when we're older. But I've seen with patients, you can start to change this. It might be very slow, yeah. you know? If you feel uncomfortable about being touched, if there's somebody, someone who you feel safe with, who feels it's appropriate with, you know, like a good friend, let's say you really trust, maybe start there. Yeah. Like, hey, look, I wonder if you just, you know, could we have a hug? Yeah. Um, as, as you have a hug, see, can you just sort of pat me on the on the upper shoulder, upper back as I do that? And it sounds so soft. If people look at that chapter in the book, they will see there is hard research and data on this. There is this proper science, right? So it's about trying to find this stuff in your life, introduce it. Yeah, look, the touch trade, as I call it in the book, kind of has exploded. You know, massages, which are great. Uh, there's even... Um, yeah professional cuddlers now in the UK where they go around and cuddle, right? Because we are starved, we are a society starved of human touch. And it's just, I think for many of us, simply the awareness of it will lead to change. Right. Hopefully people right. will listen to this podcast, they'll hear that and go, ah, oh, hey, you know what, I can make a bit more of an effort there. Yeah. Uh, one, of, one of my most popular recommendations in the book actually is in the intimacy section, it's called the 3D greeting. I think you remember this one, but it's kind of to do with touch, but other things, and I say, look, Going on the theme of before, where sometimes we're with the people who mean the world to us, but we're not present, I say, look, try something called the 3D greeting. Greet your partner in three dimensions for like 15 seconds a day. And it's, this is it, and this is what my wife and I do. And it's a bit forced at first, but very quickly it feels incredible. You greet with touch, so let's say a hug, with eyes, so you make eye contact, and with voice. These are the three dimensions, right? And such a simple thing for 15 seconds in the morning can transform our day because you really connect. Rather than being busy and rushing around, feeding the kids, getting them off to school, and sometimes you won't properly connect. It's just a simple way of connecting. And Sean, the funny thing is, since the book came out, the amount of people who contact me and say, oh my God, this has changed my relationship. One woman recently contacted me, and I've heard this from many, typically women, I, I must say, in terms of people who've contacted me about this, said, hey, Dr. Chastity, I've been doing the 3D greeting on my husband's for the past week. He's completely changed, right? Mm. He doesn't even realize I'm doing it to him, right? Mm. So he doesn't realize mm -hmm. she's doing something. He's more affectionate. He's more present. He's more loving. He's more relaxed with the children, right? Just from her yeah. giving those three dimensions an effort in yeah. the morning. And, you know, I think this is so important, we're so busy, we're so rushing around. It's these little things that actually lower our stress level, sure, but they improve the quality of so many aspects of our life. Yeah, absolutely. This is so good, so good. Man, I would love to continue this conversation. You know, there's so many nuggets and insights, and uh, but I just really wanna encourage everybody to pick up the book. We're just scratching the surface, yeah. you know, on all the different dimensions and insights. And, you know, what this really spoke to for me is that communication with the touch. You know, instead of me telling my wife, ah, I don't like that, you know, encourage like, this is what I do like. Because one of the things that we do a lot is, and it's so beautiful, like you're saying these things and I'm thinking about them in my life, we hug a lot. Like throughout the day, we hug a lot. And, but every opportunity that we have to experience that closeness, it just, it's not just a bonding thing with you and another person, it's good for your system. It's good for your soul. And so uh, thank you so much for putting this together because I know that this was something that really pushes the boundaries of what we think is connected to our health and wellness. 
And you've just been out here doing a lot of good work for many years. And I just want to just really thank you for stepping up and, and, and bringing this to a, a larger group of people. It's really beautiful to see, man. I appreciate that, Sean. You're doing great work yourself. And, you know, thank you for inviting me on to your show for the second time. Super, super appreciate it, man. Thank you. Awesome. Can you let everybody know where they can connect with you online and where they can find your book? Yeah, so The Stress Solution, available all over the world now. If you're in the US, I'd say best place is Amazon.com. Uh, check it out there. I'm all over social media. Uh, Instagram is probably the best place to get me, at Dr. Chatterjee. That's D-R-C-H-A-T-T-E-R-J-E-E. And like you, I've also got a weekly podcast called Feel Better, Live More. Awesome. We'll put all that in the show notes for everybody. Again, thanks for coming to hang out with me. Thanks, Sean. Awesome. Everybody, thank you for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this. He came in all the way from the UK uh, just to share some of these insights and wisdom and to get the word out. And he's been doing this work for a long time. And the compilation of information and experience that's in a book like this is really special. And so one of the biggest takeaways for me from the book was the conscientious concept of reframing, because we're all going to experience stress in our day-to-day -day lives. And there is an important dimension to understand that stress can make us stronger but to modulate the stress and to not allow it to overtake us. And a buffer that we have for that is just simply reframing some of the stress that we're exposed to. And so one of the things that I do to reframe that I wanna share with you is whenever something that might rub me the wrong way or to bring like a noticeable stress into my life, I simply ask the question, what is the gift in this? And I think about that, what is the gift in this? And sometimes you have to be a little bit more meta because when you're in it and something that you don't like is happening, we tend to just latch onto and ruminate on it. To just to take a step back and to ask that question, and you'll usually find something really, really beautiful within a certain type of stress that comes up. And so if you can keep that in your back pocket, and again, all the stuff that he's talking about today, these are practices. This isn't something that you do once and then you know it, it transforms everything in your life. These things are things to practice and to conscientiously implement. And the beautiful part is there's so many small things that you can do. You don't have to do all of them, but just take one or two, maybe even three, and start to practice these on a consistent basis, all right? So asking, when the stress comes up, what is the gift in this? Maybe it's providing an opportunity for more resilience. Maybe it's providing an opportunity to uh, perspective take, right? To put yourself into someone else's shoes. Maybe it provides an opportunity to know how strong you are right? Maybe it provides an opportunity to know that I need to take a little bit more me time, right? There's always a gift somewhere in the mess. All right. So thank you so much for tuning into the show today. I appreciate it so much. Uh, make sure to tag myself and tag Dr. Chatterjee and let us know what you thought about the episode. I appreciate this so much. Share it with the people you love, that you care about, and let's reduce this stress. All right. Got some incredible episodes coming your way very, very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. All right, take care, have an amazing day, and I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.